This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Payer Issues Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by John Backus, Chief Executive Officer of LA Care Health Plan. John, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Laura. Now, I know we've got a lot to talk about. LA Healthcare Plan recently celebrated some really big milestones, but before we dive into my questions, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. I've uh, been in managed care now for God, 45 years, <laughs> it seems like an eternity. Um, and I've uh, been with five different plans over that time. And I've served as CEO of three of those. I've been here at LA Care for about seven and a half years. And uh, this plan is um, different than any of the others I've been associated with because it's largely a Medicaid managed care plan. And of course, in California, we call it Medi-Cal. But uh, we serve about two and a half million Medi-Cal members who reside only in Los Angeles County. So we're a one county plan, but we're in the largest county in the United States. Um, and then we also serve a couple hundred thousand other members who came to us through the um, Affordable Care Act uh, individual market exchange, which is called Covered California here. And we're also in a duals program. And we also have some uh, SEIU home health care workers covered by our plan. Absolutely. Wow. So it sounds like you just really have a lot going on, a pretty sprawling uh, <laughs> responsibility there with the LA Care Health Plan. So yeah. when you think about uh, everything that's going on today, obviously the past few years have been uh, challenging through the pandemic for everybody within the healthcare system as well as globally. Um, so in thinking about where we're at today, what are some of the issues in healthcare that you're following most closely right now? What really is front of mind for you um, when you're thinking about what you need to do to serve your plan, your members, as well as what makes sense going forward? Well, you know, uh, Laura, the uh, COVID pandemic is a watershed event. You know, once every 100 years or something, we have pandemics like this, apparently. And this was a watershed event because the disease fell hardest on people at the lower end of the economic spectrum and people of color. And I think what it exemplified for us is that inequality is uh, a life and death matter. And we really need to be taking it more seriously than I think we have societally. So when I look at our members, we had probably the highest rate of infection, highest rate of hospitalization, and highest rate of death among our population. And so I think it just points out to us that what we really need to be focused on as a healthcare provider and in partnership with the providers who participate with us is really addressing the broader uh, social needs of our members because they do impact the quality of their healthcare and their ability to respond to something like this pandemic. So um, right now, California is expanding the um, Medi-Cal portfolio, if you will, by uh, having the plans take on more responsibilities uh, around those kinds of issues. So for the first time, beginning this last January, we were able to pay for certain community supports that I think are important. Uh, a good example is medically tailored meals. Uh, it's long been known that if uh, people with certain health conditions uh, have diets, that are <clears throat> helping address those that you'll get improved health outcomes. 
And that's one of those items that we were paying for before out of our own money, meaning our reserves uh, for members who we thought were really desperately in need of food as medicine. So now we can begin to use the Medi-Cal dollars we get for that very purpose. And there are other examples of that in this package that uh, began January 1st. So we're plotting the state for um, moving in this direction, and we're happy to be executing it here in Los Angeles. So I'd say the inequality issues from the pandemic, what we need to do to address serving our population so that they're better prepared for the next time something like this happens. Um, so that's sort of the major overarching theme that concerns me on behalf of our members and our providers. On a more immediate basis, um, as a result of the COVID pandemic, the economics of healthcare are changing. Um, we all know that nurses uh, who were on the front line um, are leaving in droves. Um, they're not necessarily leaving nursing, but they're leaving bedside nursing. And they're going into places like utilization management and care management, which is something we do. But the remaining people who are in nursing are demanding higher compensation. And we've had a huge increase in nursing costs that is going to really pressure uh, health premiums, including those for Medicare, Medi-Cal rather, and Medicare. Um, and then here in California, we are seeing uh, in certain cities, and it's happened here in Los Angeles, where the city council passed an ordinance requiring that private health providers, private hospitals, doctors, clinics, that the lowest uh, compensation for their employees of any nature is $25 an hour. Uh, nobody's arguing that these jobs aren't worth $25 an hour, but the city council making that a mandate without having anything to say about or a way to contribute to the reimbursement is a problem. So I see that and the nursing issue uh, really causing um, price compression here where the costs are going to go up and we don't see that the resources that the federal government and the state government provide for Medi-Cal are gonna match that. So we think we're going to enter into starting next year a really tough economic period. And we're gonna have to work closely with our, uh, the legislators and the regulators to address this because that will, if it's if we don't address it, then the first concern I had about our ability to address the inequality that our members find themselves in is not going to go anywhere. So I'd say if the, those are the two biggest things right now, uh, one long term and one short term, but they are yoked. Absolutely. I think that's such an interesting point and definitely uh, an interesting situation that you're in there in L.A. and something that's playing out on a smaller scale um, in cities across the country in terms of trying to figure out the staff pay, nurse pay and, and what it really costs right now to provide health care while at the same time you know, figuring out what those rates are, are going to be and look like in the future. So when you think about this economics of health care and the challenges that are ahead between um, health plans in, in delivering to members and then as well for healthcare providers. Uh, how are you really planning for some of those um, conversations and discussions in, in really the reality of what the economics look like in, in healthcare um, over the next couple of years? 
Well, I think we really have to be in dialogue with the uh, legislation, legislators and the regulators at both the federal and the state level, because really, you know, if you look at Medicaid across the country, it's been around for 57 years now. And uh, over that time period, uh, 10 or 40 out of the 50 states have moved to manage care as a way to manage it and pay for it because many states found that they could not control the cost of Medicaid. And so they've turned to managed care plans so that we could bring in some of the disciplines that managed care has demonstrated over the years around prior authorization and uh, paying for quality care and using capitation and those kinds of things to make it work. And I think uh, it has worked very well. Um, and 80% of the Medicaid beneficiaries in the United States now are in a managed care plan. So um, I think uh, that says a lot about what we do, but we cannot do it alone because we are in partnership with the government, which is the funder for Medicaid. So I think uh, we have to have a robust dialogue with legislators and regulators about what's happening on the ground and what the needs are. Uh, they've entrusted us to take care of millions of people uh, I think we're doing a really good job, but there are barriers and we need the help of those regulators and legislators for us to address them. So um, I see, I hope that we will have in the next couple of years, a more of a partnership between us and the funding and regulatory agencies um, than we've, we've ever had before, because I think it's necessary for us to continue to do what we're doing. Absolutely. I think that's a really great point and definitely something to look out for. Now, I know LA Healthcare Plan recently hit a huge milestone with the elevating the net safety initiative. What does that mean for your community and how are you able to so successfully execute even through the challenges of the last two years? Well, it's elevating the safety net and the safety net, of course, are those providers who see people on Medicaid or people with no insurance they're kind of the providers of last resort. Um, and I'd you know, maybe 20 years ago, it was not as big a network as it is today. But when the Affordable Care Act was passed in uh, 2010 and was implemented in 2014, a lot more providers came into managed care uh, or came into Medicaid uh, because there were more people covered and the funding uh, was not, and the funding made it that they could afford to do that. So um, elevating the safety net uh, is really a way to further support those providers. One of the biggest challenges we have in Medicaid, whether it's here in Los Angeles or around the country, is having enough providers in the right places to serve the Medicaid population. Now, in California, Medicaid takes care of one third of the population of the state. 14, over 14 million people. So um, if we have these healthcare deserts where there are not adequate providers in those communities, it means that the beneficiaries who live in those communities, the people who live in those communities have to travel further for care or they just don't get it. So elevating the safety net was a way to begin to address that. 
this came about by my uh, asking our board of governors to set aside 5% of our unassigned reserves. And, and our reserves are built up by uh, the operating income we have left at the end of a given year. And we asked them to set aside 5% of that money for five years, which created a pool of $155 million. Uh, and we uh, earmarked that money for uh, what I would call workforce development. And there are four components to it, and I'll quickly go through those. The first was to encourage clinics and practices that did serve the Medicaid population to, if they needed to um, hire additional providers, which they all do, uh, it was very difficult for them to compete in the marketplace. Kaiser Permanente is a huge provider here in California. They're a partner with us in Medicaid, but they have the ability to kind of suck up all the available talent in the community because they pay very generously. Uh, the safety net providers don't have that same capacity. So we provided grants to any uh, clinic or provider who would bring a new primary care doctor into the safety net. Uh, and they couldn't hire the guy across the street from another safety net provider. They really had to bring in somebody new. And uh, we provided a $125,000 grant that they could use as they saw fit to supplement the salary or whatever. And if those providers coming in had medical school debt and would agree to stay three years, we would retire $180,000 of that debt. So it gave them a package of $305,000 to be competitive. And since we started those grants in 2018, there are 139 doctors now in practice in the safety net who weren't here then. The second component of it is to build a pipeline for the future. Uh, and we do not have enough doctors of color in the Medicaid provider network when we have a huge population of people of color. And the data is very clear that if uh, you have a provider who is similar in terms of race, ethnicity, or language, you have a better outcome because there's a level of trust or a level of communication that's better. So we came up with the LA Care Scholars, and we have been funding eight scholarships a year, uh, four at the Charles R. Drew University of Medicine and Science in South LA, which caters to minority students, and the UCLA Geffen School, which also tries to attract minority students. And we provide a full four-year ride and we ask the colleges to they select the recipients because they can probably spot the first year medical student who is now that's the one who's going to come back and work in the community so we have funded 40 of those so far um, and uh, half have been women and uh, all but two have been uh, students of color so we're building a future pipeline that we think will uh, make a difference uh, to the future patients of these doctors. Um, and all of them have uh, are committed to coming back uh, and working in the safety net. Then we provided um, funding for 14 uh, residency programs in primary care here in Los Angeles. Um, and um, we hope again there is that that funding will lead those in those uh, residents to can stay here and continue to work in the safety net. And then finally, the fourth component was that we have been training um, healthcare 
home health workers. Uh, there's a program in California called in-home support services where the beneficiary uh, has the ability to choose who their caregiver might be and the state and the county will pay that caregiver uh, about 12 50 an hour and provide health insurance benefits but most of the time the beneficiary selected a family member who had no training so we entered into an agreement with the service employees international union to train those people uh, and we're funding it. It's a 10-week training program in the language of choice of the caregiver, which uh, are English, Spanish, various Chinese dialects, and Russian. And at the end of the 10-week course, they get a certificate and so forth. Um, but I, we've trained 5,000 people to date, and uh, we think it's making a dent. We're studying the utilization of the clients of these um, home health workers to see uh, if we're getting a return on the investment. And what we're seeing is a reduction in emergency room visits for this population and a reduction in readmissions to hospitals after a, a discharge. Um, and the takeaway from the, the caregivers has been fabulous. They have said, look, we feel so much more confident about our ability with this training to take care of our client and the clients are thrilled as well. So it's a program that I think really should be emulated across the country because as we have an aging population and the cost of institutional care is out of reach and falls mostly on Medicaid, we're really going to have to have home health people, home health workers and caregivers that are knowledgeable so they can provide not just loving care, but knowledgeable care. That's really impressive to hear about all those different initiatives to provide care to the community, to support the caregivers, whether it's some of the physicians as well as diversity amongst those physicians and in, in those who are supporting, and then the caregivers too for um, at-home care. So that's really interesting. And it, you know, when you look at what it took to put together that program, especially um, training some of those home care providers, um, what what was that like for you in, in thinking about, as you mentioned, kind of um, expanding that so that other organizations could do something similar? What, How did that start and what did it really take to build it out? Well, uh, I, I give a lot of credit to SEIU. Uh, when this program started many years ago, uh, they recognized the need to do this training as well. And they received a grant under um, the um, Affordable Care Act. Uh, there were innovation grants, and they received a grant. So they set up a training program for home health workers. And uh, when the funding ran out, they were going to close the program. And that was about the time we were beginning to realize if we invested in these um, home health uh, providers, we would probably be the health plan would benefit as well as the quality of life of the people being served. So we went to them and took the program they developed and we um, customized it for um, the people taking care of our members with the idea that it would teach them about the value of managed care, and that they're the front line of the care team because they're with the patient more than anybody else. And uh, so we tailored the program uh, and we've been running it for four years now. And, uh, it, you know, it says, and I, I have a story I tell because uh, it, you can't make this stuff up. We had one of the uh, caregivers appear at a, our board meeting to 
kind of give our board an idea of what we were investing in. And this man got up and said, I'm my mother's caregiver. And this program has helped me uh, recognize the difference between my role as her son and my role as her caregiver. And as a result, I'm better at both. So to us, that spoke to the value of this program. I would also add that I think, uh, I'm sure we saved lives during COVID because of this. Uh, as you know, when COVID first began, most of the uh, deaths were in nursing homes. And for any of the people that we helped here, who uh, was able to keep their client at home and not be institutionalized, I think was a big win. Absolutely. That's just amazing to hear and, and, you know, really, really helpful in so many different ways. Now, before we wrap up our conversation, I'm wondering, could you touch on how you're thinking about growth and investment over the next two years or so? Well, I don't think we're going to see the massive growth we've seen um, in the last seven years. We've grown by a million members. Um, and I think we've seen we'll have one more wave of new members because California has extended coverage in Medi-Cal to undocumented residents. Uh, we've got those up to 26 and now those 50 and over, but by January of 24, we'll also pick up the 26 to 49 year olds. So there'll be another wave of people coming in. I would hope, frankly, that not so many people have to rely on Medicaid, that there is a robust economy that provides jobs and opportunities and people can rise, um, get out of Medicaid and get into uh, employer-sponsored health insurance. Because if you look at the ceiling for getting into uh, Medicaid, it's 138% of the federal poverty level here in California, which is you know about $17,000 for an individual and $36,000 for a family of four. So seeing more people on Medicaid means we've got more people who are living under pretty harsh economic realities. So I'd like to see that, see that grow. So our investments are going to be more around the support services that go to people who are eligible for Medi-Cal. They're also eligible for a host of social uh, services. And we wanna see that exercise to the maximum to improve the opportunity and the ability for folks to get a better health outcome and hopefully a path to a better life. Absolutely, that makes a lot of sense. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really interesting conversation and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Laura, thank you very much for inviting me. It was a pleasure.